And welcome to the latest episode of APIs Unplugged. My name is Matt McClarty. I'm the global field CTO for MuleSoft. It's great to have you here uh, on this, what is a rainy day in Vancouver. Surprise, surprise. Of course, as always, Mr. Mike Amundsen is here as well. Mike, what's going on? Hey, hey. Well, we got a little bit of rain here too. We've, we've uh, experienced some snow, which is a bit unusual for the part of Kentucky where I am. But we also have a nice, dreary January rainy day. So I'm, I'm excited to get together and talk with you and and share. That's right. We'll cozy up here by the uh, virtual fireplace uh, for for today's discussion. Um, and and I tell you what, like you know this, Mike, but for the listeners, we were all ready to sort of cut off season three and yep. go to our highlights episode. And season one and two, we had 16 episodes, including the highlights. We were just going to cut it off and do... Okay, we'll do 15. But then something happened. Uh, Stephen Fishman, friend of the show, who is joining us today. Stephen, how's it going? Going good. Hi, Matt. Hi, Mike. Yeah, awesome. So Stephen was actually in rainy Vancouver over the weekend. Uh, we're working on a book. And uh-huh. we we're having a we we're having a writing session here in, uh, what is it, Studio B, I guess. Today I'm up in Studio J. But uh during the session, which we'll, I guess we'll talk a little bit more about what that was all about, but um, we found something that we thought was going to be really interesting to the API community. Um, uh, so, so okay. essentially, today's today's topic is going to be the origins of the API economy, and that's a, that's a yeah. This is big. We're gonna we're gonna make some claims on here as we try right. and sort of piece together. Uh, piece together those origins, but uh, yeah, that's that's why we're here. Excellent. Yeah, it was a fun big aha moment that Matt and I had as we like we knew we knew a lot of the pieces of the puzzle, but like it all came together in like this one this one excerpt that Matt found. All right. Well, this sounds really intriguing to me, but I I have to back up a little bit. First of all, you're writing a book. What is this book you're writing? And what is it about? What's going on? Matt and I have long been like discussing and dialoguing on like why API economies work, why contextualized versus decontextualized products work in different spaces and all this stuff. We've always been a believer of, you know, that there's this conversation between fit for purpose and design for reuse. And we figured out a good amount of stuff regarding this concept called optionality, which is where um, organizations that work to create options for how they can offer value in different ways, but aren't necessarily obligated to, to bring those options to market, that they have, there's benefit and there's economic benefit to that. But then you you talk about those things and then some of the architects involved might say, well, that's not fit for purpose. We don't design things without without a, a, a real use case. And, you know, we, we lack the tools in the math to actually be able to, to push back against that idea of just build what you need for today. And that was like the big inspiration of the book to figure out how could we respond to that? And we that uh, the book is about understanding how optionality works, why that tool and that concept in and of itself works for digit and has worked for digitally native 
organizations and how can like, you know, uh, longstanding enterprises that aren't necessarily digitally native, how can they like adopt and think about that idea and get the sorts of returns and, 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 uh, uh, you know, market dominance that, that is now being almost exclusively in many, uh, places controlled by digitally native organizations that have, have not been around for that long comparatively. Yeah. So, so, okay. So now there's a whole nother book I need to learn more about and read about. We'll talk about this at another time. So now how does what you were working on this optionality notion and other things, how does that get us into this origin story, Matt, that you were, you were talking about earlier, what that, which is supposed to be our topic of the day, right? Okay. This is definitely the, let's, let's, Gather around the fire and, and talk. Okay. So, all right. so we all know that one of the, you know, most impactful, but also maybe overdone uh, memes in the API community is the Jeff Bezos API mandate, right? We're all, everyone's probably in the space is familiar with this idea of, uh, you know, Bezos putting out this email edict in 2002 to everyone at Amazon saying, you know, everything's got to be built behind these interfaces, network addressable interfaces. They have to be made externalizable for developers. Teams are only going to talk to these interfaces. And if you don't do this, you're fired. Right. This has been mm-hmm. going around for more than 10 years, I would say. Uh, now, the origin of that uh, came from Steve Yegi's rant, which is probably quite famous as well in software engineering circles. Steve Yegi was a at the time, he put out this post on Google+, Plus, an engineer at Google, but had previously been at Amazon, and he was going on a, a bit of a tirade about how Amazon didn't do a lot of things well, but they knew how to build platforms, and Google didn't. And Anyway, that's sort of legendary. In fact, I found out through our research that, uh, that Yegi actually has a YouTube video out there where he brings his recollections of having had a bit too much wine and writing this rant and waking up in the morning, finding he's on the front page of the wall street journal. But, <laughs> but, but I was digging into that because I thought, you know, there's sort of, it just feels like there, there's a few things that always have bugged me about that mandate. And we actually, you know, Mike, we covered that on our APIs yep. myths and legends last year. But one of the things that bugged me is knowing Yegi's personality, which he just puts right out there. You just know that it's gone through some interpretation. Like Bezos is, Bezos's mandate certainly did not use exactly the words that he put there, nor did Yegi claim that he did. He's kind of like, yeah. hey, something like this. But also, even in that rant, Yegi specifically says, I don't know why Bezos did this, but this is what he did. And sort of this is the effect that it had on the company. And I think a lot of the time we spent was on, hey, what you know, look at what this did for Amazon's internal engineering and agility and all that, right? But there's not really anything in the note from Bezos that specifically says, hey, this is about making our teams more agile, right? right? He doesn't give any hints, at least in the way Yegi's represented it. But he does talk about making it externalizable for developers. So as I was kind of digging into this, and I don't know, maybe maybe Stephen, you, you know, he's probably procrastinating from writing a chapter I was supposed to be writing. <laughs> I, was, uh, I thought, I remember reading. Mike. Yeah, I, yeah, bet, but, I bet, yeah, yeah, I bet. Undoubtedly. <laughs> So I was, I'm like, you know what? I read this book called The Everything Store uh-huh. you know, eight years ago, maybe longer, by Brad Stone, I think was the author. And in there, he had a chapter that started out talking about 
Amazon's use of APIs. But he wasn't talking about the mandate. He was talking about Tim O'Reilly having these big conversations with Bezos that had kind of got him thinking about making things more open for developers. So I wanted to connect the dots. And I went back and in the notes for that book, at the back of this print book, there's a link to a O'Reilly blog post, which I looked up. It was not available. But ha! thank you, thank you, Wayback Machine. Thank you, Yay. Internet Archive. Went on there, did you know, hand typed the URL in. Boom. I got this Tim O'Reilly blog post from 2002 where he's talking about how he was essentially going on a roadshow to all the big tech companies at the time saying, hey, you guys really need to open things up for developers. Um, and he goes into a whole, his whole sales pitch around it. And so I've, you know, I've got this in front of me right now, but he was saying like, I, you know, talking about John Udell, uh, talking yeah. about Clay Shirky, like all the people at the time who were talking about, and, and the reason I think, you know, this is important. Like the reason that Amazon web services is not called Amazon cloud or Amazon APIs or anything is because mm. web services at that time, 2002 yeah was the yeah. big technology that that's what people were calling this idea of connecting businesses through the web. And so, you know, O'Reilly goes and obviously we'll, we'll include the Wayback machine link in the show notes. Um, but he's essentially saying, look, I'm, I was lobbying Google. Uh, they didn't really commit to anything, but later on, they, I noticed they put an API out there for their search engine. So that was good. And he says, <laughs> this is a quote from the, from the blog. I've also hammered AOL's MapQuest relentlessly in public talks, but haven't really gotten any traction. Maybe the approach, Stephen brought this point up, maybe the approach there of relentlessly hammering them in public talks is not going to be receptive. Yeah. But he does go on later in the in the blog to predict that, you know what, because MapQuest is not opening up, they might be disrupted. Yeah. So that was wow. not a bad prophecy, although he, yeah. he said it, they'd be disrupted by Microsoft MapPoint. And I don't think it was MapPoint, yeah. right? Nope. But anyway, um, but here's the thing. So he, he talks about, here's why I'm telling Amazon. And, and, and by the way, I think, I think this was really a reaction to the fact that Amazon had at this time published their first public API, which they did call, I think, Amazon.com Web Services. And he says, you know, here's why companies need to do this. Right? Number one, platform strategy beats an application strategy. He's just talking about mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. being open, being developer friendly, and and using Microsoft as the example of of how they've been able to leverage their platform advantage over and over again. So number one, sort of platform thinking. Number two was this idea of if you put APIs out there, you're going to create some un, unintended consequences, which can be positive consequences, right? You're giving developers a playground. They're going to bring in new ideas, features at the same time. Uh, it builds your brand and image. And Mike, what's what's that quote you always use around that idea of sort of uh, you know people are going to come up with ideas you never thought of? You know, I know you have a oh, you know. um, is 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 it the one the one where I basically say that uh, you're designing things for people to solve problems you've never thought of for people you've never met? Is that the exactly idea? exactly? Yeah. and that's yeah. that's really bang on in terms of what O'Reilly says in point two, point three. Yeah. Point three, and you know he's aiming at Bezos with this one, is like there's revenue opportunities, right? And he even calls, <laughs> out, he even calls out Google's uh, sort of freemium approach of you know give give the developers the tools at low scale, let them start playing around. Once they scale it up, then you start charging them. It's kind of like hey, here's a model. 
And then finally, um, he makes he makes the point sort of a little bit of altruistic wording around giving give something back to the industry. Yeah. But I think the gist of that point is more around lift all boats. If you put something, the network effect, if you put something out there, uh, it's going to create more value that, and everybody starts exploiting that value. It actually just creates value in the ecosystem, which everybody benefits from. So I just thought, you know, here's a note that you could picture him in the room with Bezos. And I think what, what, you know, just 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 to, to, to kind of close on why I, I thought this was a big aha moment. Like the timing is perfect in terms of when Bezos's mandate went out there. In the Amazon press release for uh, for their new APIs, there's only two people quoted: Jeff Bezos and Tim O'Reilly huh. right, when they launched the APIs, which is another reflection of the impact they had. Plus, I mean, you can trace points of that mandate right back to the value points that he's he's bringing in here, right? Like. Not so much. It's like the why to the how, right? You need to make these interfaces not just developer friendly, but specifically uh, you need to create everything that we build in a way that can be used by external developers. So uh, that's that's kind of the nutshell of, of what was found. And I just thought that it was just a big missing link as we look back into this API space. But I do want to kind of ask, right? Because I, I think that... Um, Hey, that's over 20 years ago. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Time yeah. flies. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at that time, I'll just say, you know, this is all I'll say on where I was. I was working at a bank and we just happened to be uh, trying to open up our core systems internally through SOAP APIs, web services, mm-hmm. which which is a little bit funny because in the in the O'Reilly memo, he talks about how the industry was kind of screwing up by trying to use this stuff internally instead of taking advantage of the web. But so I guess I was yeah. part of the problem. <laughs> but, you know, there was a lot going on with, with uh, web services at that time. So what, like Mike, you were, you were, I think, you know, working at Microsoft or with Microsoft and some stuff. What do you recall from that time? Well, yeah. So around that time, I was definitely a like, developer advocate. I had already published my initial books on, uh, um, Visual Basic, and then moved mm-hmm. on to Visual Interdev, which eventually becomes Visual Studio. So we were definitely talking about these kinds of things. And I even, I know, you know, we were kind of uh, uh, saying things before the show. I was a big proponent of this XML HTTP request uh, mm-hmm. idea. Um, Microsoft had an active X control for <laughs> Internet Explorer. So I was really touting ActiveX. I, I contributed some chapters to an X, uh, ActiveX book. And uh, was going around telling people about how you could do these uh, database calls mm-hmm. with your browser using this ActiveX control. All you had to do was kind of like tweak a few uh, security features inside the client. Nothing big. <laughs> <laughs> shut security off. Yeah, yeah, just shut security off. It'll be great. But so um, it's interesting that you that you mentioned this idea uh, about uh, applications versus platforms because in 2002 I was actually working for a company that was trying to break in. We were one of those tiny startups, those super agile with a small a startups trying to beat back some big organizations. And I was involved in helping build a, a, a platform for on which you could build lots of uh, service and client applications that were browser-based. So uh, I was doing a lot of this kind of platform building internally, sort of like what you were doing at the bank, but doing it with... Uh, with a lot of Ajax 
Jesse, uh, was it Jesse James Garrett's, uh, uh, mm-hmm. right? Uh, Ajax mm-hmm. material. So I was definitely in that space, but, uh, and that's also when I got, I got stuck, I was having trouble. So I read Fielding's dissertation and things, but I was still very much focused on enabling an organization internally and then exposing that for others. I wasn't really, you know, I was an early um, uh, subscriber to Byte Magazine, you know, long before the Webby parts came. So when John Udell starts talking about this, this idea of how we can start to do things, you know, externally, uh, he was talking about this, I can't, I can't remember the name of some platform, uh, Zope, that's what it was, Zope. Right, right, right. Um, uh, was at a, you know he was talking about this idea of how we can sort of enable each other, enable search, and enable calls. That was still a little bit uh, stretchy for me, but I was definitely sort of along that that same kind of path. What about you, Stephen? What were you, what were you doing around this 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 time? <laughs> so I was um, I was in part of uh, the team at Sapient, building hmm. like dot coms and the the some of the original API infrastructure type stuff in in. Yeah. Terms. Open writing parsers and and things for trading platforms of various different financial services companies and so like right around this time it's like the first time I I was uh, building APIs that were you know rudimentary at that time but it was just so much power of wow. that those like decontextualized things that could then be interpreted into whatever you know whatever ways you want and I, I was struck by something that like the two of you guys were talking about when. Uh, you were talking about some of the uh, the quotes from mm-hmm. um, gosh, I forget the name of the person you said of John. Might have been Udell. It might have been before that. But what's funny to me is that you look at all these like giants of the internet and giants of technology, whether it's you know Bill Gates or or Linus Torvalds or mm-hmm. or Bill Joy, who's a, you know all the smart people don't work you know more, yeah. don't work for you and yeah. all the things point to the same idea of yes. like make something that other people can build on top of and it yeah. will happen and it yeah. like it will it will happen just because people have I don't know at that point in time maybe people had more time in their hands maybe they still <laughs> have more time in their hands I don't know but all these things emerge. And yet people still need more proof that, that <laughs> this is a way to, to, to go about doing things. And I wonder, like, I do remember one specific thing at that time, because I remember sitting in the, the, the halls of Sapient building things, and we were, we were caught, like, caught strange and looking at something on Amazon in the reviews of, of, of products. And we just saw how... Like there were a bunch of people who were entering reviews mm. about like that were like um, satirical reviews about things. I don't know if you ever, if you ever, <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yes. At the yeah. um, gosh, what's his name? Knight Rider. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Hasselhoff. David Hasselhoff. If you go look in at and in Amazon and look for reviews of Hasselhoff, you'll see there are pages and pages, <laughs> like thousands of these. Fawning reviews, and like I, I admit, I'm a little bit curious to think, you know, maybe some of the people at Amazon go look at what people are doing on our platform that we never intended. Where do they get yeah. these t- this time to write yeah. like, these books of of yeah. love about David Hasselhoff? 
And maybe <laughs> if we open more stuff up, people will do more stuff that is actually beneficial to us. <laughs> oh, you know, you know what I love is that is that you you immediately dated yourself by saying night night rider and not Baywatch. But anyway, <laughs> um, but but no, actually, there's something in there though that that Amazon. You know, I, and I wondered about this. Like, was I wonder if Bezos is he was already sort of seated for this idea of platform building because uh, that's another thing out of that book, Everything Store that I mentioned. Um, there's originally like in the early days when Amazon was just an online bookseller, they had hired an, a staff of book reviewers yeah. and they would put reviews yeah. out all the time. But then once they opened up the floodgates to customer reviews, and it was kind of one of those internal competition things, the, the customer review team was like, you don't need the the, yeah. the full-time reviewers. We've got customer reviews. And the book review team was like, well, we write better reviews. And it was just so clear from the data that as more and more customer reviews came in, nobody was reading the, the full-time reviews. They were just looking for the aggregate numbers from the customer reviews. So, so I wonder if that sort of that's more of a crowdsourcing thing, but would, would get them thinking the same way around developers. But one, one thing I didn't mention, and it's part of the story in the blog from O'Reilly, is that he claims that after these conversations with Bezos, who was very receptive and said something like, he called him back a week later and said, uh, hey, Tim, uh, Jeff here. Uh, you know, I found out we're actually building APIs inside our organization and if i hadn't talked to you i might have shut the whole thing down right wow. so so there was something that is that but then apparently as well bezos went to the o'reilly emerging technology conference in 2002 and so sure. more more little uh, breadcrumbs here uh, I, I i went through the way way back machine i'm like what was at that conference what what was o'reilly or what was bezos exposed to that might have opened his mind and i did locate a bunch of Press articles again. Thank you, Wayback Machine. Interestingly enough, one of the presentations at that conference was from the Internet Archive on how the Wayback Machine works. Uh, Brewster, I, Brewster Kale. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but I, <laughs> I digress. But even looking at that that conference agenda, which I found somebody had blogged a while ago. Their blog is still live, by the way. You don't even need the Wayback Machine. Um, the agenda for the conference and all the speakers at the conference. And one of them was uh, Paul Prescott, who's my colleague here in, sure. uh, in Vancouver at Salesforce. And he was uh, presenting and moderating on interesting enough, rest, rest versus soap uh, dialogues uh -huh. yeah. that were taking place, sure. which I guess sure. today would be rest versus uh, GraphQL or something. Anyway. Uh, so I, I talked to Paul and uh, he, he said, yeah, that was a strange conference because it was right after the dot-com bubble had burst. And, you know, people were in this sort of a, I think they were in sort of a rethink mindset. So maybe that's another part of why all these conditions that come together to make this happen. But I think, you know, the fact that it's coming from O'Reilly, there was also a lot of stuff at that conference about open source and open source thinking. And it was interesting. Um, I think O'Reilly had done a keynote a couple of years earlier at the Java One conference where he was even talking about this idea of APIs and openness and was, was saying like, here's the similarities of what we're going to see around this idea of, you know, making a small contribution and everyone reaping a big reward, similar being similar to open source. But he also specifically was telling uh, uh, Strawman or whatever about the licensing that, you know, in yeah. an API led world, you're not going to be yeah. able to put those licensing rules anymore. It doesn't apply. It's yeah. a whole new 
ball game. Yeah. Anyway, that's actually that's actually one of the discussions around that time period that I remember, which mm. was this idea of of uh, that the, that passing the code around is what you did, right? You gave people software and they installed the software. And what O'Reilly and other people, Udell and Shirky and all these other people are talking about is you're not going to even be passing the software anymore. The software doesn't have to be passed around. All that is to be passed around is the data that the software operates on. And the rules about that are going to be very, very different. Now, it took a long time, I think. You know, it wasn't until like maybe five years ago that we started to realize that large organizations were taking open source and creating their own services online that they could charge people for right like all of a sudden it's not as open as we you know as we thought it used to be those those restrictions don't always work so that's still playing out and mm -hmm. i remember discussions even then maybe it was john udell that was talking was that is that right was it john or tim that was talking about uh, he may have been referencing yeah. udell but yeah it's yeah. A, you know there was a, there was a lot of a lot of collaboration going on for sure all right so let me let me see if i can rein this in a little bit so other than just a wonderful uh, trivia <laughs> contest about naming people and talking about the Wayback Machine and stuff like that, what, Matt, this is for you, like, what are, what do we really, you mentioned it earlier, maybe we forgot something or maybe we, you know, we don't talk about things we used to, what, what's the nut here? What, what is, what's the, well, what's I, one of the to, takeaways here? To me, the takeaway, a big takeaway is that I feel like there's been a bit of a fallacy of how the mandate, the Bezos mandate has been interpreted, which mm. has been, I've seen it used a lot to say, Hey, get your own house in order before mm -hmm. you go, before you go and externalize things. Right. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, we've probably seen some examples of that approach that have been successful, but I've also seen a lot of time spent where people are reluctant to go and open things up until everything's perfect inside. I right. think that it's pretty, to me, reading, Again, we only get it secondhand. So reading the, the Yegi version of the Be Bezos mandate and then also the O'Reilly bit, it just seems like there's no question Bezos was aiming for external day one, right? And, fa and, the, and the fact that a couple, you know, sh within a month or so after he talks to O'Reilly, Amazon releases its first external API, he wasn't waiting around for everything to be API enabled inside. He was like, right. let's go and, and let's go test the opportunities thinking that, you know, the bigger audience that you're exposing things to, maybe the more ideas and innovation you're going to generate, the more value you're going to generate. And hey, so so I guess the the idea is that we, we may think about Amazon unbundling their uh, infrastructure services and turning them into mm -hmm. S3 and, yeah. you know, ECS and so on. I think people forget the thing that comes after the and. In that in that original statement, like and you will make them uh, externalizable, design mm -hmm. them from the from the beginning as if they might be, and yeah. it wasn't about the decision when you would or wouldn't. It was presume and assume that it might be, yeah. and that yeah. that was the creation of the option to yeah. allow right, him right. the decision and you know the leadership of Amazon to make that decision later down the road at no other additional cost. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that the we what we've seen as well, kind of this uh, pattern of technology diffusion, which tends to have sort of this hockey stick, or at least it's perceived as a yeah. hockey stick, probably more like exponential growth that, you know, we work with a lot of companies that are putting APIs out there. 
you work really hard, really hard, really hard for for a while to just get anyone to sort of use the API, figure out what's useful, put all that in, and then boom, it takes off. I think at the same time, Amazon was internally, okay, we're going to do things in a, in a new way. And, and, and by the way, apparently, according to Yegi anyway, it was taken very seriously because Bezos had strong control over the organization. Yeah. But the same time that was going on internally, they were getting all the learnings externally. They were already seeding the external world. And yeah. so you need, you need both of those to come together to kind of, uh, to kind of make, make things take off in the way they did. There, there's one other part there, which Mike talked on briefly about like, you know, a couple minutes ago regarding the, uh, the, the meeting of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. And that on the one side, you know, we're almost, almost exclusively talking about the supply of creating yep. those things. But that the presence of Ajax at that time, which came out of Jesse James Garrett and Adaptive Path, like in that it, it, it established a pattern that was syndicated, open, everybody could do it. And it became a thing to make the consumption of those services really easy to do. And it became like, oh, they're doing it. Here's how they did it. And we know how to do that. And that opened up the floodgate by you know, reducing the friction of consumption, it mm-hmm. made the, the the power of supply much more powerful in and of itself. Yeah, you know, and you mentioned, um, you know, Adaptive Path. They, they had a huge influence over the way uh, front-end developers were thinking about this, but back-end developers as well. And there's another sort of thread to this, if we're going to, you know, sort of make this a contest about, you know, pulling <laughs> out old threads, and that would be David Weiner. So David's XML RPC, David's what what results in really simple syndication, RSS, is mm-hmm. also brewing around the same time. SOAP is actually a, an outgrowth of the really simple syndication and XML RPC. RSS is one of the things that we used Ajax to pull, right? Mm-hmm. That's why it was called the XML HTTP request object. It wasn't called the JSON request mm-hmm. objects originally. And, but yeah. the idea is that, you know, we can start to, to uh, read information from other sites and put them directly on ours. It isn't just links anymore. It's the connections. So all of these things, you're, you're really right, Stephen, in the sense that um, you've got lots of possibilities, lots of things. You've got RSS, you've got Ajax uh, in the client side. You've got the ability to start, you know, uh, using SOAP to create interfaces, proxies to start creating services. And it takes people who don't need to be hammered, to use Tim O'Reilly's phrase, to say, well, let's build one and see. And that certainly, to my mind, uh, reflects Jeff's Jeff Bezos's style in general, right? It's like, no, go do one kind of approach, right? So I think, yeah. I think there's an awful lot of things that kind of came together around that same time frame. Yeah, so I'm gonna I'm gonna throw something out here that I've I ran by Stephen a few weeks ago um, that does relate to all this, and it, especially to this idea that you've got concurrent innovations happening, like mm. AJAX and you know XML over HTTP, and just thinking around this ecosystem. What's the? I think there's the Bill. Well, it gets attributed to Bill Gates. I don't think he's the one who said it about. And you, I've heard you say this before as well, Mike. Like. What we're really bad at figuring out what's going to happen in the next two years, but but we always yeah. or we always overestimate what's going to happen in two years, but underestimate what happens in ten. Yes, I think this yeah. comes back to the uh, 
it comes it comes back to the idea of optionality because what creates the hockey stick or the exponential curve is the combination of innovations that are going on right like it's it's the it's the fact that you put these things together and then things take off so maybe early on there's one innovation and it does a little bit but then all of a sudden you figure out how to use it with these other innovations and things yeah. take off and the well, only that- way that happens is is by creating the option in the first place. So for, yeah, for organizing, yeah. That's kind of the way uh, Tim Berners-Lee described the way he came up uh, with what his version of what the web was, right? He says, well, I took a little bit of DNS and then I, uh, you know, kind of came up with a simple protocol and uh, this uh, format, HTML format, and all of a sudden it was all there, right? That stuff, the technology was in place, but it took somebody to kind of mix and match, you know, just to press it a little harder. We're kind of excited about Mastodon and the Fediverse and these other things going on right now with ActivityPub. Well, that's Webfinger and RSS again, both of which are 20-year-old technologies that are put together in a new creative way. But in this case, it isn't just an, you know, a business entrepreneur that thinks this is a, this is a great idea. It's social pressure and it's, mm-hmm. it's a community uh, values that sort of really caused this mastodon system that's been around for six years, six or seven years, to yeah. finally take off this year as kind of like a magical new thing. It's based on technology that's more than a decade old, and it's been around for more than five years before we finally start to use it. I, th- I think one of the things that we're, we're like unearthing as we discuss this is uh, a Salesforce term and I, I don't know if it was Benioff who first said it or, or Parker Harris, I'm not sure, but is that tactics dictate strategy. And that mm-hmm. um, the, you know, we've all heard about, you know, the ecosystem of experiments and, you know, that stuff in order to create innovation. And that, that I think that that's well understood and true. But what people I don't think really get about that, that methodology is that having the fully baked out strategy that comes from the top and that, People will do things according to what that top-down strategy is. That that's just a non-working model, and I think there's a lot of a mm-hmm. lot of evidence for that. And the flip of that is the the the, the Salesforce term, which is tactics dictate strategy. In that, the part of the reason you do the experiments is to figure out what you don't know, and not just in mm-hmm. the in the technology world, but it's figure out what you don't know about product market fit and. Like, are, is it the right timing for this type of idea? And like, can I, can I get some demand and pull through of, of that idea? And when those things happen, that's like the aha moment. And it's not because you like intended it, because like maybe you get lucky with, you know, mm-hmm. one experiment to one fit, one success. But I think it's more like that you're doing, you know, a number of experiments looking for the ones to separate the wheat from the chaff on and the ones where you get the real pull through develop a business and economic model around that. And to let those, those, those tactics that are successful create the strategy to go forward and, and scale those into something that is, you know, profitable and beneficial. So, so is this kind of like, making your own opportunity then, right? You're like, you're, you're kind of bouncing around, you're trying some things and you're trying to see what, like you say, what you get pulled through on or what, what you get reaction on. Then you're like, Hey, that looks like it attracts a crowd. What can we do with that? Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about here? Exactly. 
Aha. And I think the other, the other angle to that, and then now kind of circling completely back to the book is what we're seeing in talking to a lot of companies who have some really great stories to tell. Um, you know, it's that it's putting the, the, the making the bets out there. I think Steven's absolutely right. We've seen that any, any, any top down dictated plan seems to fail because it's based on a, a crystal ball that doesn't exist. But there's still, you know, sort of mission, you know, high level mission, high level vision that, that are help to, to guide things. But then then you take the make the bets along the way and you try and keep the bets cheap. Right? You try and like companies that want to optimize this approach. It's to get really good at putting things out there so that they can be tried, tested and the ones that succeed can be scaled. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. It's, it's really it's really about um, creating a space where it's safe to experiment, safe not just uh, you know mentally but safe financially, right? Mm-hmm. And doing experiments that are not dangerous. So we're not drilling but you know the holes in the bottom of the boat here. We're trying to maybe build a different kind of boat, right? Or you know a little prototype or something. So Bezos maybe maybe what we're really hearing here when we go back and look at all this material, is yeah, Tim Tim O'Reilly was talking about these things. Udell was talking about this. Jesse James Garrett was talking about this. Dave Weiner was talking about this. And you've got some organizations that are able to, you know, experiment. Let's try this. Let's try that. Let's try that and discover. Hey, there's a there's a great opportunity. There's a good need here. There's this strikes a chord. That is, you know, very different than the stories we tell ourselves, the romantic stories we tell ourselves about mm-hmm. Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or all these other yeah. things where, you know, it's sort of like the uh, Alexander Graham Bell stories or something where, you know, we've, we've been motivated our entire lives to do this one thing. That's not really how it works very often. No, right? no, no, exactly. Yeah. And I think huh. even I've seen, um, you know, what was it? Uh, i trying to remember where this was. We're basically saying like, you don't need to be a Steve jobs i think it was bezos said this anyway you know just have to just have to put a lot of ideas out there and see which ones work so i i think that is actually in the yegi rant bezos realized he didn't need to be steve jobs in order to provide everyone with the right products interfaces and workflows that they liked and felt at ease with he just needed to enable third-party developers to do it and it would happen automatically well so so this i'm now i'm very i'm very hyped about this book that you guys are talking about here. So what's, yeah, what's the well, story? You know, well, it's it's going to be a while. We're, we're probably ah. from publication. We're still a year out. We'll have lots more types of information to share. Well, it'll be right now, and we're pretty set on this. It's going to be called Unbundling the Enterprise. This book is a ways off, but we're going to have to have you two back then to tell us more <laughs> about your next sprint uh, next writing sprint and what you guys unearth and uncover. And so we can talk more about this yes. in the future. Yes. Season, in right. season four. Of in season four. Like, exactly. We definitely look forward to that. But anyway, this has been fun discussion. Yeah. I hope, uh, you know, it's a little, Hey, we we're maybe a little bit self-indulgent in our memories, but I think there's a lot <laughs> that's still very applicable in the present day. So Steven, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Matt. And uh, Mike, as always, thanks for, uh, thanks for, uh, you know, uh, hearing us out on this, on this, 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 this is fun. I love, I love, I love to hear from you too on this, on this. And I'm serious. I'm very excited about uh, what you're going to come up with here for the book. It's very cool. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks as always. And 
to the listeners, thank you very much. Hope you've hope you've learned some new stuff. Hope you can apply these historical lessons. And we look forward to seeing you on the highlights episode, for, which will close season three and in season four of APIs Employment. Bye for now. Mm-hmm.